Section 22 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 40 The Tory Diogenes Rolling His Tub, Part 3. The Queen invited Lord Granville to form a ministry. Lord Granville was still a young man to be Prime Minister considering how the habits of parliamentary life had changed since the days of pitt he was not much over forty years of age he had filled many ministerial offices however and had an experience of parliament which may be said to have begun with his majority after some nine years spent in the house of commons the death of his father called him in eighteen forty six to the house of lords he made no assumption of commanding abilities nor had he any pretense to the higher class of eloquence or statesmanship but he was a thorough man of the world and of parliament he understood english ways of feeling and of acting he was a clever debater and had the genial art very useful and very rare in english public life of keeping even antagonists in good humour probably a better man could not have been found to suit all parties as prime minister of england in times when there was no particular stress or strain to try the energies and the patience of the country still there was some surprise felt that the queen should have passed over two men of years and of fame like lord palmerston and lord john russell and have invited a much younger man at such a moment to undertake for the first time to form a ministry an explanation was soon given on the part of the queen or at least with her consent the queen had naturally thought in the first instance of lord palmerston and lord john russell but she found it a very invidious and unwelcome task to make a choice between two statesmen so full of years and honours and possessing so just a claim to her consideration her majesty therefore thought a compromise might best be got at between the more conservative section of the liberal party which lord palmerston appeared to represent and the more popular section led by lord john russell if both could be united under the guidance of lord granville the acknowledged leader of the liberal party in the house of lords the attempt was not successful lord john russell declined to serve under lord granville but declared himself perfectly willing to serve under lord palmerston this declaration at once put an end to lord granville's chances and to the whole difficulty which had been anticipated there had been a coldness for some time between lord palmerston and lord john russell the two men were undoubtedly rivals at least all the world persisted in regarding them in such a light it was not thought possible that lord john russell would submit to take office under lord palmerston on this occasion however as upon others lord john russell showed a spirit of self-abnegation for which the public in general did not give him credit the difficulty was settled to the satisfaction of every one lord granville included lord granville was not in the slightest degree impatient to become prime minister and indeed probably felt relieved from a very unwelcome responsibility when he was allowed to accept office under the premiership of lord palmerston lord palmerston was now prime minister for life until his death he held the office with the full approval of conservatives as well as liberals 
nay indeed with much warmer approbation from the majority of the conservatives than from many of the liberals palmerston formed a strong ministry mr gladstone was chancellor of the exchequer lord john russell had the office of foreign secretary sir g c lewis was home secretary mr sidney herbert minister for war the duke of newcastle took charge of the colonies mr cardwell accepted the irish secretaryship and sir charles wood was secretary for india lord palmerston endeavoured to propitiate the manchester liberals by offering a seat in the government to mr cobden and to mr milner gibson mr cobden was at the time on his way home from the united states in his absence he had been elected member for rochdale and in his absence too the office of president of the board of trade in the new ministry had been put at his disposal his friends eagerly awaited his return and when the steamer bringing him home was near liverpool a number of them went out to meet him before his landing they boarded the steamer and astonished him with the news that the tories were out that the liberals were in that he was member for rochdale and that lord palmerston had offered him a place in the new ministry cobden took the news which related to himself with his usual quiet modesty he declined to say anything about the offer he had received from lord palmerston until he should have the opportunity of giving his answer directly to lord palmerston himself this of course was only a necessary courtesy and most of cobden's friends were of opinion that he ought to accept lord palmerston's offer cobden explained afterwards that the office put at his disposal was exactly that which would have best suited him and in which he thought that he could do some good he also frankly declared that the salary attached to the office would be a consideration of much importance to him mr cobden's friends were well aware that he had invested the greater part of his property in american railways which just then were not very profitable investments although in the long run they justified his confidence in their success at the moment he was a poor man yet he did not in his own mind hesitate a moment about lord palmerston's offer he disapproved of palmerston's foreign policy of his military expenditure and his love of interfering in the disputes of the continent and he felt that he could not conscientiously accept office under such a leader he refused the offer decisively and the chief promoter of the repeal of the corn laws never held any place in an english administration cobden however advised his friend mr milner gibson to avail himself of lord palmerston's offer and mr gibson acted on the advice the opinions of mr cobden and mr gibson were the same on most subjects but mr gibson had never stood out before the country in so conspicuous a position as an opponent of lord palmerston perhaps cobden's advice was given in the spirit of dr parr who encouraged a modest friend to adopt the ordinary pronunciation of the egyptian city's name dr bentley and i sir must call it alexandria but i think you may call it alexandria mr cobden felt really grateful to lord palmerston for his offer and for his manner of making it i had no personal feeling whatever he said to his constituents at rochdale 
in the course i took with regard to mr palmerston's offer if i had had any feeling of personal hostility which i never had toward him for he is of that happy nature which cannot create a personal enemy his kind and manly offer would have instantly disarmed me lord palmerston had not made any tender of office to mr bright and he wrote to mr bright frankly explaining his reasons mr bright had been speaking out too strongly during his recent reform campaign to make his presence in the cabinet acceptable to some of the whig magnates for whom seats had to be found it is curious to notice now the conviction which at that time seemed to be universal that mr cobden was a much more moderate reformer than mr bright the impression was altogether wrong there was in mr bright's nature a certain element of conservatism which showed itself clearly enough the moment the particular reforms which he thought necessary were carried mr cobden would have gone on advancing in the direction of reform as long as he lived it was mr cobden's conciliatory manner and an easy genuine bonhomie worthy of palmerston himself that made the difference between the two men in popular estimation not much difference to be sure was ever to be noticed between them in public affairs only once had they voted in opposite lobbies of the house of commons and that was if we are not mistaken on the maynooth grant and mr bright afterwards adopted the views of mr cobden but where there was any difference even of speculative opinion mr cobden went further than mr bright along the path of radicalism mr cobden's sweet temper and good-humoured disposition made it hard for him to express strong opinions in tones of anger it is doubtful whether a man of his temperament ever could be a really great orator indignation is even more effective as an element in the making of great speeches than in the making of small verses the closing days of the year were made memorable by the death of macaulay he had been raised to the peerage and had had some hopes of being able to take occasional part in the stately debates of the house of lords but his health almost suddenly broke down and his voice was never heard in the upper chamber he died prematurely having only entered on his sixtieth year we have already studied the literary character of this most successful literary man macaulay had had as he often said himself a singularly happy life although it was not without its severe losses and its griefs his career was one of uninterrupted success his books brought him fame influence social position and wealth all at once he never made a failure the world only applauded one book more than the other the second speech more than the first macaulay the essayist macaulay the historian macaulay the ballad writer macaulay the parliamentary orator macaulay the brilliant inexhaustible talker he was alike it might appear supreme in everything he chose to do or to attempt after his death there came a natural reaction and the reaction as is always the case was inclined to go too far people began to find out that macaulay had done too many things that he did not do anything as he might have done that he was too brilliant that he was only brilliant that he was not really brilliant at all 
but only superficial and showy the disparagement was more unjust by far than even the extravagant estimate macaulay was not the paragon the ninth wonder of the world for which people once set him down but he was undoubtedly a great literary man he was also a man of singularly noble character he was in a literary sense egotistic that is to say he thought and talked and wrote a great deal about his works and himself but he was one of the most unselfish men that ever lived he appears to have enjoyed advancement success fame and money only because these enabled him to give pleasure and support to the members of his family he was attached to his family especially to his sisters with the tenderest affection his real nature seems only to have thoroughly shown out when in their society there he was loving sportive even to joyous frolicsomeness a glad schoolboy almost to the very end he was remarkably generous and charitable even to strangers his hand was almost always open but he gave so unostentatiously that it was not until after his death half his kindly deeds became known he had a spirit which was absolutely above any of the corrupting temptations of money and rank he was very poor at one time and during his poverty he was beginning to make his reputation in the house of commons it is often said that a poor man feels nowhere so much out of place nowhere so much at a disadvantage nowhere so much humiliated as in the house of commons macaulay felt nothing of the kind he bore himself as easily and steadfastly as though he had been the eldest son of a proud and wealthy family it did not seem to have occurred to him when he was poor that money was lacking to the dignity of his intellect and his manhood or when he was rich that money added to it certain defects of temper and manner rather than of character he had which caused men often to misunderstand him and sometimes to dislike him he was apt to be overbearing in tone and to show himself a little too confident of his splendid gifts and acquirements his marvellous memory his varied reading his overwhelming power of argument he trampled on men's prejudices too heedlessly was inclined to treat ignorance as if it were a crime and to make dullness feel that it had cause to be ashamed of itself such defects as these are hardly worth mentioning and would not be mentioned here but they serve to explain some of the misconceptions which were formed of macaulay by many during his lifetime and some of the antagonisms which he unconsciously created absolutely without literary affectation undepressed by early poverty unspoiled by later and almost unequalled success he was an independent quiet self-relying man who in all his noon of fame found most happiness in the companionship and sympathy of those he loved and who from first to last was loved most tenderly by those who knew him best he was buried in westminster abbey in the first week of the new year and there truly took his place among his peers. End of section 22